Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of BYOB, the healthcare podcast. Uh, we really appreciate everyone listening into our two-part series for Gabby Galvin. Uh, again, we just want to sh- uh, give her a shout out. She has a daily column with Morning Consult, uh, where a lot of really great insights are shared really across the country with people who are in our field uh, and across the healthcare landscape. Today, we're really excited to welcome Erin Tietstra. Erin uh, is actually a head of investments at Hope Lab, uh, which we'll jump into what that means, but a really interesting background and speaks to what it's like to find a position within the venture space, especially with a really great organization like Hope Lab. Before we jump into that conversation, Joe, knock in, why don't we talk a little bit about what we've been doing since the new year has rolled in uh, and some of the things that we're looking forward to uh, as we look at not just this podcast, but some of our own developments in 2022. Yeah, yeah. so far 2022 has not stopped. <laughs> it's just been kind of rolling along, uh, especially um, with work these days. Uh, we've, it looks like we've hit the end of a cold streak or what I'll call a cold streak in uh, Long Beach where it's not 40 degrees in the morning anymore, which is wonderful. Um, and also there's, there's a news article that came out that was sent by K-Rock that found that California had the best tacos. So just wanted to call that out. No matter what happens, Joe will not let me live down this taco comment. Um, and if anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, we were in San Diego last year for a conference and I seem to debate the fact that California in general has the best tacos, but Joe will continue to call it out for me, uh, until the end of eternity. Yeah. For, for 2022, it's, uh, not starting off great with, with Omicron. I was, uh, actually going to go out to, to a basketball game with a couple of friends and, uh, a UCLA basketball game at Stanford, and that got postponed and, and eventually canceled. They're no longer allowing people um, to attend games, or at least Stanford isn't. So it's uh, back to uh, kind of hunkering down a little bit in, in California, or at least for the short term. What about you, Freddie? Any uh, new changes in 2022 for you? It's been a really busy end of the year for us and kicking into the new year has been, you know, a lot of the same. I think as many organizations, we're trying to determine what is the best foot forward and how do we actually create plans in a, you know, multivariated COVID world. So that takes a lot of strategic alignment, but also thinking about how do we put our staff first. So again, it's been really humbling to just be conscious of where our staff are today and and what are the things that we can continue to do to accommodate all the needs that they have. But from a personal level, celebrated a birthday recently. Uh, Always feel really lucky to be able to say that. I feel fortunate to be able to be in good health and have the opportunity to to travel and see new things. But uh, excited to be back on the pod with you guys and and bringing on great guests uh, in this first quarter of 2022. Yeah, the the one other thing I want to add is in reference to, to taking care of staff, there's been kind of a, a huge surge of uh, infections, Omicron infections. And so um, staffing has started to become kind of a, a big deal at Stanford and it gets mentioned way more frequently than before. Um, so something to, to think about as we move forward. Yeah, I think that's definitely important uh, piece of healthcare news, but I think looking at ahead this year, there's you know a lot going, on in the healthcare space. Um, 
I think that's a good uh, lead into our next segment on talking with Nakin. Uh, take it away, Nakin. All right, welcome to Talking with Nakin, the segment where I dive into healthcare news and try to focus on a story that's uh, relevant uh, to students and that has caught my eye and uh, or is top of mind for discussion. So the, the story I wanna talk about today is one that was big news sort of towards the end of December when it was announced that Oracle acquired Cerner, the EHR company, for $28.3 billion. Um, and it's thought that this acquisition is going to really help drive um, healthcare data into the, the cloud-based world by allowing Oracle to, to really help service and, and simplify a lot of the challenges that uh, physicians and administrators deal with when using an EHR. But Joe and Freddie wanted to get your guys' thoughts on what you think of the, the acquisition, if it you know, seems to make sense to you, or how, how you think Oracle or Cerner is going to benefit from, from this new position. Yeah, it's a really great point, Nakin. And I think, you know, I'll just share some of the media coverage that I've seen. Uh, HFMA released a really great article today uh, on what is January 10th, just speaking to some of the reaction that has been seen across, you know, the, the healthcare and news landscape. You know, you have people saying this is a seismic acquisition, others saying that they're not really sure on the effects. Uh, there still needs to be a better understanding of how these industry sectors are served by these big tech firms. Uh, and others are saying it's a wait and see approach. Um, while someone like the Wall Street Journal back on December 21st said that the deal could address major challenges in healthcare. Um, and if we align data sets that can communicate with another with one another, interoperability becomes a much quicker realization than just a session that we maybe hear at a conference about what would be nice in a new world. I think I've heard about it from a lot of landscapes. I have a good friend here who was a former employee of Cerner who will now become an employee of Oracle. And I think they're very much applying the wait and see approach, but it kind of leans into the conversation that we had with Gabby, right? As more of these giants in tech become part of healthcare, it will be interesting to see what some of the long-term benefits are because we know that this industry can absolutely be supercharged. But what we need to make sure that we keep in mind from a data breach standpoint, ensuring that our information is transitioned and moved in the right kind of mediums, uh, but also ensuring that you know healthcare is different. We're not servicing products, we're servicing people. Uh, we're helping people get to a better state uh, of health. So what does that actually mean for a large tech player like Oracle who has its arms in a lot of different areas when it means to one of the largest uh, EHRs or EMRs uh, that people use from a healthcare standpoint. Yeah, I'm a, I, I think Freddie, you bring up good points that people have a, a wait and see approach. I'm, I tend to be a little bit more bearish just on my thoughts on, on these kind of acquisitions, especially when it comes to like healthcare and, and kind of tech especially the large players. So the, the current uh, Cerner CEO is uh, David Feinberg, and he was most recently, I think he just joined a few months back, but uh, his most recent position was heading up Google Health. He was their CEO. And in 2019, 
November 2019, they took a lot of heat, Google Health and, and David Feinberg, for uh, a deal they had made with Ascension, where they were collecting millions of people's data. They hadn't notified anyone, but they had a deal with Ascension to, to take that data and to, to run analytics on it. And it was mostly designed to help simplify the doctor's experience when going through you know, an electronic health record and, and to take notes. And that just didn't play very well with the media. He kind of had to, to give a public, I don't, I don't want to call it an apology, but David Feinberg had to put some spin on it to help kind of soften the blow because they did take a lot of heat for it. Um, so that's kind of one instance of this specific CEO trying to enter that the health space. But I think more recently than that was the joint venture between JP Morgan Chase, Amazon, and Berkshire Hathaway that was called Haven Healthcare. And when that announcement was made, it was supposed to, you know, they were supposed to three giant companies revolutionize how employer-based healthcare is going to be, reduce costs, create savings for everyone. And that didn't work. Uh, Haven folded in January of 2021. And each of the companies, I think Amazon more specifically, is, is still working on their own kind of healthcare practice. But so there's the, the reason I bring up these examples is there's just been a lot of hype, I guess you could say, or maybe a desire to, to fix these problems. And it seems like some of these large companies still haven't been able to, to make any tangible strides, at least. So yeah, that's an interesting point, Akin. If you think of someone like David Feinberg, I mean, he's an incredible thought leader, right? He did incredible things for Geisinger, uh, a lot of promise when he moved to Google. And we can point to a lot of areas where they did some great things. Uh, maybe Project Nightingale is not one of those examples, um, at least it's how it's represented in the media, right? And I think that brings up a good point. The other one is I'd be interested to know how much of this deal had been going on as David Feinberg moved into that position in the latter part of 2021. And will we see a cascade of some of these really large um, players, movers, thought leaders in the healthcare space moving to new institutions and then seeing some large investments coming into that, that space? I think as we think about organizations outside of healthcare, you start to get to a maturity level where you take the money that you have and you invest it in new partners and partnerships, uh, and you try to buy externally what you can create internally. And I think as we look at traditional partners in healthcare or traditional players in healthcare, how many can continue to innovate internally, either that's, if, either that's with an internal innovation lab bringing in new companies, or how many of them will look to the outside markets or even outside industries to shape some of that change that needs to happen. Uh, and I think that would be a really good way to think about our conversation today with Erin as, as she talks about how that happens at Hope Lab. Uh, with that, let's have our conversation with Erin. Absolutely, and thanks so much for having me. Uh, a little about me, I'm a native San Franciscan from the city, which is pretty rare. Uh, I'm the youngest of three kids, and I'm the daughter of a doctor and an education advocate. So I've always been drawn to the idea of mission-driven work that improves the lives of others. 
And I always really liked science growing up. Um, I studied biology undergrad, but pretty quickly realized that I was too squeamish to be a doctor and I didn't really like pipetting in the lab. Uh, so I was kind of floundering for a while, wondering where that left me in terms of career options. Um, but I had an opportunity to do a lab internship at Novartis in Shanghai, and they would bring in different business leaders within the company to help us understand how our research could translate into treatments. And I got really excited about the business side of healthcare. And that felt like a way to continue to pursue my love of science and also to tackle these really big, meaningful problems at a large scale. Um, and so I've been in healthcare ever since. I started in biotech. Uh, and recently moved over into digital health where I focus now. And as I just said that, I said recently, but it's probably been now, what, four or five years, uh, but still feels new. Well, everything feels new in a, in a COVID world, right? That's right. <laughs> All right, so for, for our listeners who might not be aware, can you tell us a little bit about what, uh, what Hope Lab is and what they do? Of course, yes. Hope Lab is an awesome organization that aims to improve the mental health and well-being of young people. Our mission is to create a world in which young people and in particular BIPOC and LGBTQ plus teens and young adults are thriving, free from barriers to their mental health and well-being and really feel poised to live up to their potential and seize on opportunities. Um, we do this through a model of impact investing, which I lead, uh, as well as applied research and advisory services to organizations that are aligned with our mission. So on the impact investing side, which we call Hope Lab Ventures, we invest and partner with entrepreneurs who are committed to advancing mental health. Um, we really find this capability to be really useful in that it gives us the flexibility to support both for-profit and non-profit teams uh, that are dedicated to improving and scaling impact in mental health and social being, social good. Um, on the research side, we conduct really rigorous research on health, on well-being, on the impacts of technology, and we share those scientific insights to actually inform the development of new science-based technologies that are dedicated to addressing mental health for young people. And on the advising side, uh, we have a team of researchers, strategists, and designers who leverage Hope Lab's nearly 20 years uh, of experience building our own digital products. Um, and we use those insights, that expertise, those learnings from experimenting in the market ourselves in order to help other entrepreneurs achieve impact at scale. And I will say, just because this feels like a good, a good opening to say it, um, that our work has always been important, but feels particularly timely now as Teens and young adults are facing mental health challenges like never before. As you can imagine, the last two years have taken young people from an already looming mental health crisis pre-pandemic to a place of just unprecedented crisis, struggle, uncertainty. Um, we've seen recent studies that report that the rates of depression and anxiety 
and children and adolescents worldwide have doubled over the course of the pandemic. Um, in 2020, the proportion of emergency psychiatric visits among 12 to 17 year olds increased 31% from the previous year. Uh, the Congressional Black Caucus issued a report showing that the rate of Black youth suicide is increasing the fastest of any racial group. Um, and LGBTQ plus people reported that the COVID-19 pandemic negatively impacted their mental health, both more widely and more severely than their non-LGBTQ plus peers. So there's just this kind of tidal wave of challenges that are rearing their heads. Um, in response to a lot of those changes, the U.S. Surgeon General actually recently issued a Surgeon General's advisory to highlight the urgent need to address youth mental health mm -hmm. in the U.S. Um, so it's a, it's a problem that I think touches everyone. Uh, yeah. And we're finding that as we are speaking to partners, speaking to entrepreneurs, there's just a lot of energy and urgency and creativity around solutions to address mental health for young people. So it's an exciting and important place to be working. Yeah, I think there's a lot to parse from what you said. I think one thing to ground maybe the audience would be the word BIPOC, you know, yeah. not everyone really knows what that means. So would you yep. be able to break that down and talk about, you know, why is that important? Yep, so the, the term BIPOC refers to Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Um, often the reason for that distinction versus just people of color is that um, if you're looking at historical systems of oppression within the United States, it's often Black and Indigenous um, people who have sort of been most systemically oppressed and denied access to opportunity. And so when we talk about, about BIPOC, we're not solely focusing on those populations, but we're realizing that if you're not designing with those populations in mind, then you're unlikely to actually be able to take a health equity approach and address health disparities. Um, and so we're trying to think of really, a, of what are the systemic changes that we'd like to see, that we'd like to move forward. And in doing so, we're really thinking of the populations that most need to be brought along, particularly when it comes to healthcare. And why are the mental health needs of BIPOC and LGBTQ plus populations uh, so different um, from you know, maybe the larger population? Yeah, there are, as you can imagine, many, many sort of historical and social reasons, but Hope Lab has actually done um, quite a bit of work into uh, what's called minority stress theory, which is which shows that actually being in a group that is not the quote unquote dominant group can create feelings of isolation, of you know aloneness, of being different. It can actually be really challenging to form and affirm one's identity in a world that doesn't seem to value that identity. And so on top of just the challenges that anyone faces, being a teen, trying to figure out who they are and where they fit, there's this sense of otherness that can be really, really challenging for BIPOC and LGBTQ plus young people. And then on top of that, there's not just that internal sense, but there's often, as you can imagine, sort of external factors whether that's bullying, whether that's, you know, intergenerational trauma, whether that's not feeling safe in one's 
you know, lived physical experience um, that can all compound to make just life feel harder, to make psychological safety feel more difficult and less attainable. And often you're finding that BIPOC and LGBTQ plus teens are, um, are voicing those kinds of concerns more often than some of their other counterparts. So back to, to the work you specifically do at, at Hope Lab, can you tell us a little bit about what is your purview and, and some of the challenges, or I, I think you help the, the investment side that you described, what are some of the, the ways that Hope Lab thinks about uh, its investment portfolio? Yeah, absolutely. So at Hope Lab Ventures, we are typically investing fairly early stage. Um, so we think of our investments usually at seed and series A, Sometimes we'll go later if that makes sense. Um, but what we really find is we are investing in companies where we feel that we can obviously provide the financial support, but probably more importantly, where we feel like we can actually be really hands-on and thoughtful strategic partners. And so as we are considering an investment, you know, some of the questions that we're asking are, um, you know, obviously, are they aligned with our mission, which is a must have? Do we feel like this is a team that's really poised to be able to have impact at scale? Do we feel like this is a team where the challenges that they're facing feel like challenges that we are well positioned to help them address? Um, and on that bucket, I'd say there are a number of ways that we can support entrepreneurs who are trying to tackle these, these big issues. Some of the work that we do is helping on the access side, helping these companies navigate Medicaid to make sure that their solutions aren't only available to affluent teens, but are available to people who are low income, potentially even, um, potentially even the uninsured moving beyond Medicaid, but really sort of pulling on my and Margaret Laws, our CEO, um, on our networks to really be able to facilitate payer relationships, reimbursement um, as these products and companies go to market and try to serve as many teams as possible. We also, in our advising capacity, which we offer to our portfolio companies, we have a ton of expertise in just behavior change technology for young people. Um, and so we've been building products for the last 20 years, ranging from digital video games for kids who are dealing with cancer through social experiment apps that help college students navigate making new friends and taking social risks. And so we leverage that experience to say, you know, here are some things you might think about in terms of making your solution more engaging. Here are some things you might think about in terms of um, deciding what outcomes to measure and how. Um, we do a lot of work and are really proud of the work that we do actually co-creating with teens themselves. So it's one thing to have, you know, a group of 30 millennials, Gen Xers up saying, here's what we think is cool for teens. Uh, and it's a lot better to have actual young people say, oh yeah, I would use this. Here's how I would use this. Oh, this is actually doesn't make any sense for how I engage with technology. Um, so we 
do um, a lot of work sort of cultivating what we call a youth lab, um, where we're getting input from young people. But I think also really critically, we want that to be a positive experience for them. So we're giving them professional development opportunities, chances to see what is it like to work on a technology project or product to provide feedback, that kind of thing. So as we think about our portfolio, it's both who do we think is going to have a really big impact at scale and how can we play a role in helping them do that? And then thinking more specifically about what are the levers and areas of strengths within Hope Lab and within our team where we can add the most value. And so how would you characterize the, the path that, that has led you to, to Hope Lab? I know you talked a little bit about working at a consulting company for a little bit, and I think you also went to, to J&J. How, how do you see kind of your career progression and how did you end up at, at Hope Lab? Yeah, it's, um, it's a bit of a not quite meandering path, but it's certainly not a path that I, you know, laid out with clear detail and then followed from, you know, college onward. Um, so I mentioned I left college with this broad interest in a career in healthcare, but I wasn't quite sure where I wanted to specialize. So I started in healthcare consulting, which is that great catch-all for people who don't actually know what they want to do. Um, I worked for a firm called Learning Partners, and I got to work on a really wide range of projects with companies of different sizes and stages, uh, different disease areas. And I found that the projects that I enjoyed the most were really working with early stage companies, working with startups, often helping larger pharma companies identify promising technologies at smaller companies for potential licensing or acquisition. So after consulting, I decided I wanted to do something where I was actually working with early stage companies. Um, and I was deciding between venture capital and more traditional pharma business development. Um, and I had an opportunity to go to the Johnson & Johnson Innovation Center, which was really this happy mix of the two, where we were making equity investments, but also doing in-licensing ideas, uh, deals with universities and startups. Um, so kind of got to see what both of those roles could look like. And while I was at j and I had the chance to move from their biotech team to consumer health, which is where digital health lives at j and And I really got the bug for digital health as a tool for social impact as a way to rethink how we access and pay for care, particularly for populations that have traditionally been excluded from the healthcare system. Um, and that move from biotech to digital health, it felt like enough of a career shift um, that it seemed like a good time to get my MBA. So I went to Stanford and spent a lot of my time there focusing on the intersection between digital health and social impact. At the time, I was particularly focused on um, improving the quality of healthcare under Medicaid. So while I was in school, I worked with two Medicaid-focused startups. Um, one's called Conseo Sano, the other is Coach Me Health. Um, and I realized that as much as I loved those founders and those products, I really preferred the investor role. And so as I was graduating, I was looking for a role that would allow me to blend 
impact investing and digital health, which uh, you can imagine is a pretty narrow intersection. Um, but I, I quite serendipitously got introduced to Margaret Laws, who is the CEO of Hope Lab. She was thinking about launching a mental health focused impact investing fund at the time. Um, and it just kind of, it clicked. We got really excited about what we could build. Um, and I joined about a year and a half ago now to get that impact investing arm up and running. And it's been this awesome opportunity to build from scratch, react in real time to what we're seeing in the market. I get, I often say it's, you know, the fun parts of building a fund without actually having to fundraise, uh, which I acknowledge is a big part of actually starting a fund. But we had two questions when we started. One, would there be companies out there that feel aligned with our mission? Um, and two, would they want us as investors? Because as you can imagine right now, there's actually a lot of capital available to founders uh, and they have a choice of who they take on as investors. So would they find our value proposition compelling? The answer to both luckily and happily has been a resounding yes. So we now have a portfolio of five, nearly six companies that we're really excited to support and we'll just keep growing this year. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing. For some of our early careers audience, what do you think would be good advice for them as they're exploring kind of the early part of the career? Are there any specific hard skills or soft skills that you think uh, would be important for that? Yeah, uh, I hate the term networking, but networking, um, I think I was reflecting and throughout my career, I've just spent so much time speaking to people from a place of curiosity, understanding what they do, what their job entails, how they got there. And in those same conversations, sharing my interests and sort of seeing where those conversations would lead. And I don't necessarily mean networking and the, you know, hello, I would like to pick your brain. I am, you know, a stranger reaching out. Although I do find people respond to those as well, but just really kind of being open to any introduction, saying yes to any conversation. I basically would tell anyone that would listen that I really wanted to, you know, early career, I'd say, I really want to learn about biotech. More recently, I would say, I really want to find a way to blend social impact and digital health. And people come up with really creative ideas, or they know someone who's working on something similar, or they read an article that you might find interesting that you then bring up in a later conversation. And you're like, wow, I really sound like I know what I'm talking about. Um, and so I find it just really helpful to start developing that language to understand how other people kind of think about the market and where you might fit in. And as I was thinking about it, I think with the exception of my first job out of college, which I got through on-campus recruiting, every single full-time role and internship I've had has arisen from informal conversations rather than applying through you know, a formal job website. And so as an example, I actually got connected to Hope Lab through another venture capital firm that I interviewed with, I realized I didn't want to move to the city where they were based. So asked them if they knew anyone in the Bay Area. They connected me to Margaret. At the time, Hope Lab didn't have a venture capital arm. So I was kind of like, this is a really weird introduction. I don't know why you think we should talk, but sure. 
uh, why not? Um, and then of course, it turns out that the timing was great. Margaret was thinking of launching you know, this impact fund, but I think the general theme and the general piece of advice I would give is just have as many conversations as you can even if they seem off topic, even if they seem you're not quite sure how it'll fit into your story or your path. Um, it kind of feels like, you know, an approach is to talk to anyone who will listen, listen to anyone who will talk to you and just kind of see where it goes. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's great fitting advice and something that bears repeating for our listeners because sometimes even us, we forget to do that. And now, a word from our sponsor. As you progress in your professional career, there are need-to-know associations that will help you get where you want to be. MGMA Medical Group Management Association is one of those associations. MGMA has been around for almost 100 years, but more important than their history is what they have evolved into. Today, MGMA is one of the most reputable sources of data, offers an industry-recognized board certification, and is the source of timely and valuable content produced weekly. MGMA is the resource you need, and we certainly believe they can help you in your career. Exclusive to our listeners, if you join MGMA with the code BYOB Podcast, you will receive $50 off your membership. Once again, that's $50 off your membership. Take the leap, join the organization, and let MGMA show you the change they can make in your career. Visit MGMA.com slash join today. Thanks again to Erin Seachtra for joining us on the pod. Really enjoyed our, our conversation with her. And I think she highlighted some of the, the things that at least I don't think about, but impact investing in, in healthcare is an important thing. And it sounds like the, the work her team does is really important. The, the one piece of advice that I think stands out to me, though, is she talks a lot about at the end, the importance of networking. And I know we've talked about it briefly on this on this pod, but I think it bears repeating. You know, networking to, to get a job kind of feels a little bit jilted, but I think just the idea of talking to people and being curious about your work or their work and, and trying to learn and grow about what's happening in the industry is probably going to help your career. And it might not directly lead to, you know, a job opportunity, but it could kind of pique your interest in a topic and help you explore something you might not have otherwise considered. And so I think, yeah, her advice about making sure to, to do that is, is solid and uh, was, was happy that you mentioned that. Joe, kind of what are your thoughts on the, uh, the interview with Aaron? Yeah, I think I'd echo everything that you said. I think it's so important, the work that they're doing, and so applicable, especially uh, with what has arisen as a, as a result of the pandemic uh, and the impact um, that there is on a lot of young teens, uh, teens and young adults. So I think it's important that, that we have this, this conversation, this uh, discussion around these folks and the care that they really need. Uh, I, I think I would completely agree around networking and, and the importance of that, especially uh, these days where, you know, it's hard to do over virtual, but, you know, you need to do the best you can taking calls and, and meeting people um, socially distantly. Thank you again, Aaron, for, for being such a great guest on the podcast. It was really great learning about everything. Um, 
looking forward in the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at um, potentially advancement league and, and looking and also speaking with a leader, with a young leader who's an executive uh, at a health system in Texas. Um, so make sure to share, uh, subscribe to the podcast, uh, you know, provide comments on Spotify now. There's reviews, so if you can, you know, give us those five stars. Um, and thank you so much for listening. All right, our, uh, our last question, and it's one that we like to ask all of our guests, because we're BYOB, the healthcare podcast, we have to ask, what is your favorite drink? And it can be alcoholic or otherwise. Aha, uh-huh. wow. Since I'm a Bay Area native, I'm partial to California wines. Uh, and I heard you on a previous episode talking about a trip to Napa, so at some point we'll compare notes. But I will say my drink of choice is a full-bodied, fruit-forward Cabernet Sauvignon. Couldn't agree more, and I think you're <laughs> the first guest to, to put wine out there. We've gotten a lot of hard liquor options and some tea and coffee kind of options, but yeah, uh, very, very excited that you said that. Great. I'm glad I'm uh, forging a new path. (laughs) As you all know, we are sponsored by MGMA, so we wanted to take a second to shout out their career center. As an early careerist or recent college graduate, it can feel like you'll never land that perfect job or get in with that amazing company. Well, MGMA can help you with all those worries just by checking out their career center. They have a ton of resources like resume reviews, cover letter resources, and interview tips. If you're looking for a new job, I highly recommend utilizing all that MGMA has to offer, especially their job board where companies are looking to find highly engaged MGMA members like yourself to fill their roles. Visit mgma.com careers and see how the MGMA Career Center can help you today.